This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today, I am speaking with Marietta Rodriguez, President and CEO of NeighborWorks America, a national nonpartisan community development organization. I would really love to develop a, a moonshot like anyone who wants to buy a home in their community should be able to. Marietta was recently named one of the most influential nonprofit leaders in the country by the Nonprofit Times. Last month, she visited the University of Montana College of Business, and I was fortunate enough to share some time with her. Marietta, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, so tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? I uh, was fortunate to grow up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm still, even though I live in Washington, D.C. now, I'm really uh, a Westerner at heart, and uh, I grew up in a family where public service was very important. So my father did a lot of different things, but when I was growing up, he he worked for state government in in New Mexico, but prior to that, he had a career in education. He was a a teacher and a principal of a school and uh, superintendent of a school system. And my mother was a full-time mom. When I got to be a little bit older, she sort of had a a, a resurgence and a career of sure. her own where she worked in retail, but as a manager, bu- uh, buyer for a woman's clothing store. Okay. And you had early in your career, an opportunity to sort of really understand the value of home ownership. Uh, Tell us about that story. We always lived in a home that my parents owned, fortunately, and I was out of college, um, just a recent graduate, and had gotten a a job working for uh, the Girl Scouts in my hometown of Santa Fe, New Mexico, but wasn't making a lot of money. Sure. And uh, I moved back in with my parents uh, to save money. And my father immediately suggested that I needed to buy a house. And Santa Fe, New Mexico is a lot like Missoula in terms of size. It's a pretty high cost market. Real estate's really high there. And I thought he was crazy. Like, there's no way I'm going to be able to buy a home in this market. And unbeknownst to me, he signed me up to attend a home buyer education class, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the best things that I could have done or anyone can do, frankly. I didn't know about how mortgages are calculated or all of the people you encounter when you buy a home. And through that class, it was put on by a local nonprofit, and they had a program where it was a down payment assistance program where if I saved $5,000, they would match me 5000 and that would give me 10000 and that yeah. seemed like a lot of money. There was only two houses I could afford that were on the market at the time. I put bids on both, lost both, but my realtor was able to uh, identify a, a deal on a brand new teeny little townhouse. That's how I bought my first house. And so it was really brilliant on my father's part, but in in retrospect, he he didn't want me wasting money on things that I thought were important, sure. like shoes and purses and, you know, going to concerts. Whatever it is. I mean, we often sort of spend to our level of income and sometimes it's easy to not grasp the value of home ownership or just compound interest in general, particularly at a young age. 
No, that's really right. Traditionally, mortgages are underwritten for 30 years. Yeah. And so when you're in your early 20s to think, I'm going to have this debt on my back for 30 years, that's hard to comprehend. But the, the reality is you will pay that off uh, either by selling it or living in that or holding on to that property. And then that's a permanent asset. Home ownership right now is is as important as it has been in any time of our history for a lot of different reasons. Um, it can pro- provide family stability, mm-hmm. um, particularly if you have children and you're um, moving a lot to find affordable rent. Buying a house can stabilize that and you don't have to move children out of schools. Sure. In some markets, it may be true in Missoula, um, you can buy for less than what you were renting. So for example, when I bought uh, it was a high-cost market. Interest rates were, frankly, about where they are now. I think I was paying like seven and a half. My mortgage payment all in with taxes and insurance was less than what I could have rented wow. in that market. So sometimes that will work out. And then, of course, there are, there are tax advantages as well. I believe strongly in homeownership. I think there's great value. I think it helps the community when there are more homeowners. But it, but you need to go in it with your eyes wide open. And I think for any first-time homebuyer, going to a homebuyer education class is, is really the way to go. On this show, we've talked quite a bit about the state of the housing market and housing in general in Montana. And you sounded more optimistic about the state of affairs here in Montana in a relative sense. Maybe give us the state of play at a national level because you have to keep, kind of keep your finger on the pulse of, of all the markets. It's it's tough right now. We are not, as a country, putting enough units on the ground. Okay. There's an inventory shortage. Mm-hmm. There was an inventory cho- shortage before the pandemic, and the pandemic made it worse. Uh, that is incredibly true on the affordable market side. Is that a supply chain disruption or people moving around from market to market or a bunch of different variables? There's a lot of different factors. I think there are some supply chain issues. I think there are labor issues. Yeah. Um, typically, the construction trades are are staffed or um, um, by uh, immigrants, right? And yeah. so when you have a disruption in that, you don't have as many people coming into the labor force to be painters and drywallers and electricians. So I think that's also an issue. Um, And then I think the third factor is just the tough cost of mortgage finance um, because you need to be able to get construction loans and bridge loans and the cost is a lot higher. And so that then passed, that high cost is passed down to the price, making it even more unaffordable. So when you put all that together, it, it can be pretty challenging. Yeah, and you were suggesting that the where the supply shortage is most salient is on the affordable side of the market. Correct. The margins are for all of the factors of of the economy. When you build an affordable unit, the margins are really slim. Mm-hmm. So if you have rising costs for supplies or rising costs for construction costs, and it can really throw the deal off. So it's it's less attractive to developers, frankly, because the margins are so low. Now, there's certainly programs, uh, government programs, partnerships with nonprofits, and there are many here in Montana that that offer tax credits and 
um, that risk is sort of spread amongst many partners that can make affordable development possible, but it just it take it's a lot harder to put those deals together. So situate NeighborWorks America in this landscape. What is it y'all do, and and what levers do you pull in this space? NeighborWorks America is a we're a public nonprofit. We're a national organization. We support a network of locally based housing and community development nonprofits. We support 247 across the country. We're in every state. But here in Montana, we're fortunate to have two incredible organizations. NeighborWorks Montana, uh, that serves the entire state. Mm -hmm. And we have another organization in Great Falls, Montana, NeighborWorks Great Falls, that serves the Great Falls area. Your board is comprised of largely bank regulators, some of which are political appointees. Uh, that has to come with a whole host of, of challenges and um, and opportunities as well. A hundred percent. Because we uh, are a congressionally chartered nonprofit, uh, we have a statutory board. And so we're really fortunate to work with that board. But it is a five-member board made up of the heads of the bank regulating agencies and uh, and the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. And so to be on our board, you have to be uh, Senate-confirmed. I would imagine that, as you said, these people are you know, on your board are in big positions with lots of responsibilities, busy. As a first-time CEO, w- what lessons have you learned, not only in trying to interface and manage up to a board, but also maybe from some of the individuals about how they approach leadership and, and how you can uh, you know, integrate some of those lessons into your work? I think the first and biggest lesson is um, when I have time with them, when any of my staff have time with them, we need to be really prepared. Sure. Um, they don't have a lot of time. and But also, we're really honest. If they do ask us a question, it's it's okay to say we don't know and we'll yeah. get back to them. And we, and we do that. Because of their job, they think about risk differently probably than we do. Definitely differently than most community nonprofits who are mm-hmm. trying to be innovative. And so I think they help us. Um, a really good lesson I've learned is they help us think through, you know, what's the worst that could happen? What's the risk that we don't see that may be around the corner Sure, um, and plan for that? And so back to the housing space, in your talk the other night, you made this distinction between workforce housing and affordable housing. It could be a semantic difference, but talk a little bit more about that. I think that affordable housing uh, in this country is a bit of a loaded term. And we have in the industry and in communities been talking about workforce housing. So let's let's talk about who that's for. Um, Any community needs to provide to be healthy and thriving opportunities for people to live in decent, safe housing. And and the people that need those kinds of opportunities are people that we need in our communities, that we interact with every day. So when we talk about workforce housing, we're talking about bus school bus drivers, sure. uh, nurses, kindergarten teachers, first-year teachers. And when you have an escalating cost in a housing market, it can make both rent and buying out of reach. Um, And so we're seeing a lot of different 
partnerships that are coming together, sectors that are coming together to work on housing. We have several organizations in our network that are working with school districts who are struggling to recruit first-year teachers and retain them. Um, And if the teacher agrees, for example, to stay three years, their housing's covered, or they receive some break in housing, those kinds of partnerships can be really um, impactful in a community that is struggling to provide some workforce housing. Yeah, what are some of the most promising interventions that you all like to, to try to implement? Since the pandemic, we are seeing a lot more cross-sectoral work. It used to be, I would say 10 years ago, um, education systems, housing systems, uh, healthcare systems all sort of worked in their individual silos. And I think what became very apparent in the pandemic is if you're not stably housed and stably sheltered um, during the pandemic, it was a matter of life and death in some yeah. ways. So because people were working and educating their children from home, I feel like a light bulb went off in this country saying housing really matters and is a real foundation for any community. So some of the strategies we're seeing are um, healthcare systems and hospitals working with nonprofit housing developers in ways they haven't been before. So that could mean in a, um, a building that is meant for seniors, um, healthcare services coming to the unit, sure. to the building, um, to deliver flu shots or mm-hmm. diabetic testing. And when, what we found when there's a linkage between healthcare services and housing, incredible things can happen in community. There are less ER calls and, and ambulance calls to those properties. People's health is a lot better. They just li- live much healthier lives. We'll be back to my conversation with Marietta Rodriguez after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. I'm Larry Summers, Harvard President Emeritus and former Treasury Secretary. You're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to New Angle. I'm speaking with NeighborWorks America President and CEO, Marietta Rodriguez. It must be an interesting sort of triage exercise for you at times. I mean, I, I think of a community like Missoula and we have a significant unhoused population. And that's a particular set of challenges there. We have kind of the, what I would consider fits in in that workforce housing demand in that young people trying to sort of get a foothold in this economy, they can't find a job and a place to live that balances out. And then at the, at the high end of the market, we have an influx of remote workers and other folks that decided that living in a mountain town was what they wanted to do after the pandemic and a lack of supply at the high end of the market. So how do you sort of prioritize those things or or is prioritization a misnomer? How do you sort of allocate efforts across those different dimensions of the problem. I think when a community can come together and and have some visioning 
and input from everyone, then we can put a plan in place where business leaders and the government and everyone can rally around it and own their piece. Too often, that kind of community planning that includes the resident voice is missing. And I think that can derail any sort of urban or community planning that takes place. And then you can identify, all right, based on what we want to be and how we want to support this community, what are the gaps and where can we find resources to fill those gaps? There's a lot of money right now being put out, for example, um, from the federal government through EPA and Department of Energy on climate resiliency and climate response. And you wouldn't necessarily connect climate response and resiliency with housing, but they're actually very much linked. Absolutely. If there's opportunities to leverage some other programs in other sectors to help fulfill a need that is working towards a, a joint outcome, I think that is one of the better ways to think through what you just described, these these pressure points in a community on all ends, and how do you prioritize? How do you even begin to attack it? We want uh, more rural communities to thrive in this country. There are assets in this community that can be retained yes. um, and should be retained and, and make the mountain town, the mountain town. But again, if we can all agree on what those are and agree to preserve them while also addressing the other community pressures, I think it, it can be done. Are there any examples of communities in the West you think are doing it particularly well? I'm from New Mexico and there are certainly some mountain towns there. Mm-hmm. And um, I lived in Colorado for 10 years and I always hear folks say, well, you know, we we don't want to be like XYZ, exactly. you know, yeah. uh, city or town. We want to be who we are, and and I think that's okay. Though everyone has every every community has their identity, and they should work hard to retain it. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? What's the the motto? It's not a mountain town, but um, in Austin, Texas, keep Austin weird. Sure, um, they sort of embrace that identity. So. Yeah, there's, it just requires some work, some visioning that is co-created with the community. Yeah, and I think it, it's reflective of what you mentioned earlier around coordination, right? If a community can articulate its identity clearly, it can probably provide some, you know, that provides a rallying point for the, for the leaders in the community to That's kind right. of um, have clarity about clarity. what they want to be. And, and, and give, you know, everyone a voice in that. Sure. You mentioned a moment ago the connection between climate and housing. Houses with climate exposure are underinsured. We have sort of an underinsurance or an insurance bubble in this country. How does that kind of, the ability to insure our homes, how does that factor into your work? Hugely. And I am afraid that we're on a precipice with insurance. I mean, we're definitely hearing from our network members throughout the country that insurance is becoming more and more challenging, more and more expensive, more and more um, difficult to maintain. Like I I indicated, we have our network manages and owns over 200,000 affordable rental units. We have some telling us that their insurance is becoming price prohibitive um, and they can't necessarily pass that price on to their renters because then it becomes unaffordable for them. Mm -hmm. 
certainly uh, communities in the West around fires or hurricanes or tornadoes. I think this is something we really have to put some attention to and figure out in conjunction with the industry because they need to help strategize for us. I know, I know some states have their own insurance, uh, their own state own yeah, like insurance. California Fair Plan and things like that. Um, and right, the Fair Plans. I think Florida may also have mm-hmm. that, but I think they can be very expensive, and in some. I've heard in some ways even temporary. It's not a long Yeah, term they're often fix. inadequate coverage and so they're forth. They're not enough. So I think we have to think about how how we view insurance, how we spread the risk, uh, and, and really maybe whiteboard with the industry a new model. We can't rely on uh, an industry like insurance to help us rebuild. We, we probably – we need to just figure that out because we need – we need structures, yeah. um, and the climate resiliency work is going to take some time. The future has been pulled to the present with climate in many ways. You know, change happens slowly, then all of a sudden, whatever sort of pithy expression you want to use for it. But I think we're sort of living through that crisis moment right now. I think that's right. So in our remaining time, I'd love to shift to some of the things you're optimistic about. You have said during your visit here that you're particularly optimistic about the energy that young people are bringing into the housing space right now. Talk about that. Why do you think young people are so enthused about trying to solve this problem? Well, I think it, they see the direct impact on them yeah. and, and on their future. I was fortunate enough to visit a couple of classes while I was visiting, and I was so heartened by their energy, their questions, and their commitment to nonprofit service in their community. It was it was incredible. And in the housing industry in particular, the profession and the work in affordable housing really was born out of the work of the civil rights movement in the in the 60s. And so leaders, early leaders in affordable housing are, are now retiring. Mm-hmm. And we worry about how can we foster a new generation of leaders to take on some of these very complex issues? And how can we ensure that the leaders um, that are coming up are are excited about the work, have energy for the work, but are also representative of the communities that they represent. Yeah. And so that's something I'm very optimistic about, especially after visiting uh, the classes here and, and, and hearing the work and the thought process that um, these students are bringing to their studies here, but also to their community work. So I'm really excited about that. As I said, I think another area of optimism has to be um, the recognition by additional sectors that housing is important. I feel like housing is having a little bit of moment right now, and how can we leverage that uh, and and get as as much from this moment of of in some ways crisis to make sure that we're making good decisions that will propel us into the future to solve some of these future problems now. We see a lot of innovation and new thinking being brought to the sector. Um, And if there's a way we can take those winning strategies and replicate them other places, I think that can be also very exciting. 
What advice would you have for students or young folks who want to get in the game? I would say uh, definitely think about careers in the nonprofit sector in community development. You can have a career. I didn't realize that this was even a sector uh, when I was thinking about that. Uh, So that's number one. Number two, I would say stay curious about Mm -hmm. your community. Ask questions. Uh, Don't Try not to let the frustration of the issue get to you, but really think about um, solutions. Uh, and I would say, if if you if you if you are not inclined to work for a nonprofit, think about how you might be able to volunteer and add your expertise in other ways, and really stay open to all opportunities. I would have never thought that I would have had a career in affordable housing, but for going to this home buyer ed class that my dad signed me up for. And it and it really propelled me into an unknown that I hadn't planned for. So be open to those kinds of, of journeys that um, can be incredibly fulfilling and rewarding. So you've been, as we said, with NeighborWorks a long time in the CEO role, five years. You've sat in rooms with presidents and policymakers at the highest level. How do you envision your future? Where do you see it taking you? I don't know. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm pretty content where I am right now. There's still a lot of, as we've discussed, a lot of work uh, to be done still. I think, I guess I need to take my own advice and say, be open to all opportunities. But I'm I'm pretty excited where I'm sitting now. And if you had a magic policy wand, what wand policy would you try to uh, implement? Oh, gosh. Or change. Or change. I would really love to develop a a, a moonshot. Like anyone who wants to buy a home in their community should be able to. And put together, if that means a national down payment assistance pool, if that means getting a lot several large for-profit developers and incentivizing them to build more affordable homes but let's what's that moonshot and what are those pieces that you can pull together i mean this this country ownership in this country means something yeah when you own a piece of property you have a voice in that community that is unlike a voice when you don't and we were really built on that ideal, on that American dream. And it just saddens me when I hear people say, the American dream's over. Like, that's never going to happen. Well, we, we can make that happen. We know how to do this if we can just get those pieces together and coalesce around it. So that, that would be my magic wand, that people feel like they have a pathway to own a home if they choose. I don't think everyone needs to own sure. a home, but if that's something you want for your family that you should be able to do that. I love that. This notion of moonshots in general. We need goalposts that can just help us rise above the cynicism. Absolutely. And and be and 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 dream. What if? I mean, nothing was ever accomplished by people who said we can't do that, right? So you are tremendously busy. I have a big job. Um Coming to Montana is no small lift. Why did you say yes to the invitation? I think Montana is an incredibly special place. And I enjoy getting out of D.C. and and seeing what's happening in other. That makes me do my job better. So, and, and it's a beautiful time to be here. And 
uh, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't say no. I was, I was honored to be asked, honestly. Well, we're so glad that you did say yes, and I can't thank you enough for all you do for you know, the country, for the communities in which you operate, um, but also for, for sharing some of your uh, wisdom and experience with us today. Thank you. Yeah, Maria. it was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. Ella Hall is our production assistant. VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.